We have two scripture readings this morning. The first one is an Old Testament text. It's from Exodus 1, starting at verse 8. And you can find that on page 54, uh, sorry, 55 of the Pew Bibles. Exodus 1, starting at verse 8. Listen to the word of the Lord. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Well, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Our second text this morning is Mark 8, beginning at verse 27, Mark 8. And you can find that on page 977. Mark 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed 
and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, by the power of your Spirit, may these words that we have read this morning be words of life to us. Open our hearts that we may see Jesus. Draw us close to you in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. I know it's cold outside, but uh, I have received a really warm welcome, and so I appreciate that very much, and I hope all of you feel the warmth of this community this morning. Uh, for those of you who are guests this morning at Ivanrest, I, I also am a guest. I'm a guest preacher. Uh, my tie to this church is that Pastor Tony and I went to seminary together um, many, many, many years ago. <laughs> um, and I was joking with him uh, after the service. Uh, I had mentioned it in the morning service that, you know, if you want to know stories about Tony and seminary, uh, just come and see me. But I actually have nothing on him. <laughs> Um, A couple of interesting things about me, Lynn already mentioned, that I'm a professor at Calvin Seminary. I teach Old Testament there and Biblical Hebrew. And um, another thing that you should probably know about me, because it consumes a large part of my uh, mental energy and a large part of my time, is that I am also a mom. Um, I I have two beautiful daughters, Kaya, who's 12, and Sian, who is 8, And as a mom, I'm often looking through the scriptures to try and find people of faith who can be role models for my kids, right? Who can help me train up my children in the way of the Lord. And uh, because I have daughters, I'm particularly interested in stories about women of faith in the Bible. And this just happens, the story in Exodus that we read this morning of Shifra and Pua happens to be one of my favorite In fact, uh, there's kind of a running joke in our house that um, if God sees fit to bless my daughters uh, with a spouse and kids of their own, daughters of their own, that I would like them to name their daughters Shifra and Pua. Yeah, I get the same reaction from them. (laughs) As an Old Testament scholar, I think these are perfectly good names. Um, My daughters, not so much. They think that's really cruel and unusual punishment. (laughs) The truth is, I'm not only drawn to this story about Shifra and Pua um, because they are about godly women, or it features godly women, but because it is a story about good versus evil, 
where um, against all odds, good in the form of these midwives and the beleaguered slave people triumphs, right? Good triumphs, at least for a moment. And I think in this sense, uh, this story in Exodus 1 is a feel-good story. Um, Pharaoh's efforts to rob the Israelites of life and to keep them down and to keep them poor and powerless and tired and broken and bruised, his efforts are thwarted. And all of our righteous indignation at the injustice that is happening, the insidious diminishment of human flourishing and shalom um, through violence and intimidation is satisfied by God's actions to push back against the evil through the chutzpah and the cleverness of Shifra and Pua. And maybe we even get a little giggle out of the fact that Pharaoh with all his power is beaten by these two women who feared God more than Pharaoh. Or maybe we take delight in the fact that all of Pharaoh's efforts to keep these people down only resulted in them multiplying more and more. This is a story where our hope swells. Because we know that in this battle with Pharaoh, God demonstrates his commitment to fight injustice and suffering, not just in the moment, but for all time. Because by pushing back against Pharaoh's plans, God is actually safeguarding his larger plan, his long-term plan to right his broken world to restore goodness and blessing and justice to the world through the Israelite people, to bring about his kingdom of shalom. And so we want to say yay and amen. And I know for myself, this is a story I like to return to again and again when things look pretty bad, pretty gloomy when it seems as if the forces of evil are winning the day and the sin and the brokenness of our world threaten to overwhelm because it reminds me again that God has committed himself to his world and will not let the darkness overcome the light. That there is hope because God is more powerful than Pharaoh and his minions and more powerful than the evil forces that plague our world today. And that even if we can't always see it, in the midst of the evil, God is doing his work. Blessing, restoring, redeeming, renewing. This is a story with which we can say amen with loud and confident voices. Amen. Now, all of that would be enough of a message for one Sunday. But up until recently, uh, we just, my family and I just moved to the Grand Rapids area this summer, and I started teaching at Calvin in the fall. Um, And prior to that, I was teaching at a Presbyterian seminary. And one of the things I learned from my Presbyterian brothers and sisters is to read Old and New Testament texts together. And the resource they use for this is the Common Lectionary, which is an assigned set of readings for each Sunday that include an Old Testament text, 
and a gospel text. And the common lectionary does something very interesting with this text that I think is worth considering this morning. It pairs it with this reading in Mark. And the text we read in Mark is a whole lot messier. It's still a good versus evil story, and in the end, I would suggest to you that good still wins, but it's not immediately clear who the bad guys are in this story. We don't really know who to cheer for or against whom we should direct our righteous indignation. I mean, we know that Jesus must represent the good in this story, but the evil is a lot less clearly defined, or perhaps it's just a whole lot more uncomfortable. Peter, after all, is a disciple of Jesus, not a selfish and and evil tyrant. And while the Gospels describe him as being impulsive and confused and at times uh, weak of faith, they also present him as a first-rate disciple who genuinely loved Jesus and tried his best to follow him. And they record these stories that by faith, Peter walks on water, that by faith, He confesses Jesus to be the Messiah. This is Peter, Petra, the rock on which the church is built. Even among the disciples, Peter's kind of a big deal. And so putting Calvinism and total depravity aside for a moment, if we were to use some adjectives to characterize Peter, we might say of him that he's passionate and enthusiastic, and dare I say, good. He's a person whose heart is generally in the right place. How shocking, then, even disorienting, to read this strange exchange between Jesus and Peter with Jesus's devastating response, get behind me, Satan. And the explicit insinuation that Peter has aligned himself with the forces of evil. What? What is going on? I mean, it's not like Peter does anything that on the surface seems so bad. I mean, he hasn't killed anyone and he hasn't hurt anyone. He simply objects to Jesus' words of his suffering and death. And we can imagine he does this for good reason. He doesn't want to lose his Messiah. He doesn't want to lose his friend. He has other plans and other ideas for Jesus and his future. But here's the problem. Peter's plans, Peter's ideas about Jesus and his role as Messiah are incompatible with the ways and will of God. And insofar as Peter insists that Jesus not suffer and die and imposes his perspective on Jesus, 
and in a kind of self-righteous, uh, in a kind of self-righteousness imposes his perspective on Jesus. Insofar as he does this, he obstructs and threatens and thwarts God's redemptive work. Intended or not, Peter's words and behavior are of Satan. Wow. So I wonder if that's why it's so hard for us to get excited about this story. Because it hits just a little closer to home. For what Peter demonstrates for us is that the line between good and evil is not drawn somewhere outside of us, but it runs through every single human heart. Which is to say that evil is not just something that's out there, perpetuated through figures like pharaohs and tyrannical dictators and terrorist groups that seem to have no respect for life. But at times, it's perpetuated by us when we behave in ways that are antithetical to God's will and God's ways. And while we may not be involved in wide, uh, affecting widespread suffering in the world, if we are honest with ourselves, we all know that lodged in our heart are sins of pride and selfishness and envy that can shape our behavior and disrupt shalom in the relationships we have with others. In other words, the darkness of our heart can manifest itself in ways that break shalom and are clearly not what God wants for us. Now, I think um, there is one specific way in which the darkness of the human heart manifests itself. And we see this in Peter this morning, and I think it's worth pondering. It is as a kind of self-righteousness about one's own rightness. A clinging to and asserting so strongly of our own perspectives, a justifying of our own behavior that we can't see and we refuse to consider how we may be wrong or in the wrong. Now, it's possible that you don't have this problem. Maybe you've been blessed with an extra dose of humility. But I suspect that for most of us, we do wrestle with this. We wrestle with the notion, and the desire to be right. And it is the thing that breaks shalom with those around us. It can be the places where we, that, that affect tension or conflict in our lives with those with whom we are in relationship, with our spouses, our kids, other church members, with our coworkers, 
a stubbornness about one's own rightness, a kind of self-righteousness. But here's the thing. What we learn from Peter is that we may not always be right. In fact, and I know this isn't going to make me very popular, but, in, but sometimes we actually may be wrong. And so our insistence that we are right, this kind of self-righteousness, can actually make us strangely blind to the other person or even to the will and leading of God. Our self-righteousness may actually reflect more the things of human beings than the things of God. Now, I know for myself, one of the hardest things for me to do is admit that I am wrong. There is a sense of shame and embarrassment and a feeling of stupidity that goes with acknowledging that we may be in the wrong. And at times, it can be easier to go forward simply by reasserting our own rightness and justifying our own perspectives and behavior rather than admitting that we are wrong and saying, I'm sorry. But I'm struck by the fact that in this story, Jesus won't let Peter do that. And I think that's the good news of this story, that Jesus doesn't leave Peter in his wrongness. And because he doesn't leave Peter in his wrongness, he also doesn't let Peter thwart the will of God. And just like God says no to Pharaoh through the faith of the midwives, God says no to Peter. Peter's misperceptions and Peter's self-righteous attitude, that thing that caused Peter to stand up and actually rebuke Jesus for saying, for, for articulating his own suffering and death. Instead, Jesus confronts Peter with the words, Get behind me, Satan. Now, we may read this and think, Wow, that seems really harsh. But I think, I don't think this rebuke is intended to make Peter feel bad. I think it is intended to set Peter on the right course, to invite him again to examine his own heart, and so to reject the things of Satan and to be about the things of God again. In other words, it is a way of helping Peter to wake up to his own wrongness so that he is open again to drawing close to Jesus. And I think that's what God wants for us, too. He doesn't want to leave us in our sin. He doesn't want to let us perpetuate the things of Satan, to perpetuate the breaking of shalom in the relationships we have with those around us. 
And he wants to reinstate us as people who are about the things of God. And it may be that sometimes we need that wake-up call, those piercing words, get behind me, Satan. Not to make us feel bad, but to invite us to consider how we may be wrong. To invite us to examine our hearts again. To put aside what is of Satan and to draw near to Jesus. Because it is in drawing close to Jesus, in recognizing the what in our life is of Satan and committing to being about uh, the things of God, that creates space and inclination for reconciliation with our spouse, with our children, with our friends, with our church community, with our co-workers. This is the last Sunday before the season of Lent. And the season of Lent has traditionally been the time when the church engages in a process of self-examination. And so that's what I want to invite you to this week and in the weeks to come. Now maybe you come here and you already know That your own wrongness, your being in the wrong, your own self-righteousness is breaking shalom with those around you. If that is the case, then what I want you to hear this morning is that God longs for you to draw close to him. To put aside your wrongness, your self-righteousness, and to be about the things of God. Maybe you are here this morning and you experience tension in relationships and you're not exactly sure why. What I would invite you to do this week and over the weeks to come is to go to God in prayer and ask God that he would show you where you are wrong and how you might be breaking shalom. In other words, that you would hear this morning as a gracious invitation to draw close again to Jesus, to lay aside your sin, and to move forward in the things of God that will foster shalom. Amen? Let's go to God in prayer. Convict us, O Lord, of those places in our lives which we have yet to surrender to your will. Flood our minds and hearts with a longing to seek after your heart, to pursue your purposes for our lives, that in all we do and say, your name may be glorified. May your kingdom come, O Lord. 
May your will be done. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.